So check this out. I got word that Hulu threw this crazy party in Beverly Hills with literally all of the biggest reality TV stars. I'm talking about all the Bravo Lebs, Candy Burris, Portia Williams, James Kennedy, Jax Taylor, even Captain Lee and Kate Chastain. Here's the genius part. If you want to find out what happened at the party, you have to watch the commercials. Yes, I know I'll be tuning in and then signing up for a free trial to get my favorite reality TV shows at Hulu.com. Star Trek Picard Season 1, Episode 7, Nepenthe is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Leese, and here to break down everything that happened in this wild and crazy episode taking place in the great outdoors, literally and figuratively, is a man that I know so well, I can tell you whether or not he has mucus, Mr. Mike Bloom. Cold and flu season, Jess. I'm a man. I'm more mucus than man at this point. And let me just put in a requisite reference to start off this podcast. <clears throat> Troy and Riker on the Panther. <laughs> All right, now we can move on. All right, I, I'm glad you got that out of the way. Yeah, I, you know what? I, we did get seven seasons and four movies out of them, so I guess they've surpassed even the legacy of Community. So I, I have to, you know, I guess try to make them similar, even if from that regard they do outshine the other in terms of longevity. Yeah, well, I gotta be honest, Mike. I I think they I think the the gif of Troy holding all the pizzas as everything is on fire around him kind of accurately sums up what's going on at the Borg Cube. Yeah, that's very true. And I would also say in terms of popularity, I think that has amassed something greater than, I guess, the sum of a lot of Star Trek gifs slash memes, uh, Picard facepalm not included. So I guess if we're looking at the mimetic qualities of these two pop culture pieces, uh, it looks like Star Trek is currently the wood fire pizza burning in the oven. Yeah, it, it it seems like it. Although I have to tell you, Mike, I'm really disappointed at the lack of Riker sitting down action we got in this episode. Yeah, I think outside of dinner, with the only that's the only time we saw him sit down. And even when he did, like, why was the chair not automatically facing backwards? Why did he not sit astride? Like, is this Daddy Riker? Has he fundamentally become? A different person like i don't even recognize him anymore where's the bone man where's the trombone he was listening to jazz while he cooked but he even tried to regale his new friends at dinner with a, an old sultry number look look man parenthood changes you mike i think you know that better than anyone right now i suppose so i know i put all my jazz instruments away not to pull them out until a, a certain age i guess you have to go past a wily teenager even to get them to appreciate freeform jazz it's it's a hard sell even on adults, Mike. I will give you that. Yeah, that's true. Actually, we that was a runner in uh, in TNG, right? Was Riker really trying to get people to appreciate his adequate trombone skills? And even Data, who is looking to connect with every aspect of humanity, was a little bit like, okay, like, but you have to listen between the notes. Really, that's a concept in humanity. Okay, I'll roll with it. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if jazz is a great, like, 101 lesson in being human. No, it's it's reserved for, like, a 301, 401, like, advanced. Even, even some humans haven't really gotten to that level yet. They took the basic requirements and then moved on to their actual major. It's like a colloquium class. Um, So that's basically explains why Picard rocks up to the Riker Ranch and 
they do not try to inflict this on Soji right away. They understand that she's still learning all the ropes. Exactly. Like she has that head tilt. She has no appreciation for jazz. Clearly something's up with her. But I mean, I, I sort of feel like we're buried the lead, but we're sort of just talking about her directly, albeit jokingly. Jess, Riker and Troy officially back. Unfortunately, this is not a, a key, you know, positive episode for all next generation characters as we're going to get into, but it finally happened after being pimped out at us since SDCC last year. We finally got to see these three reunite. It was it was bittersweet, but I was so I was so so jazzed for it. And honestly, Mike, it would have been more of an a shock and awe moment for me if I hadn't kind of had this fourth wally impression that Jonathan Frakes has been just out of camera for most of this season so far. Like he's directed a couple of episodes, so you know he's like he's never too far from Picard. But to have him in front of the camera now is very exciting. Right. That's the thing. And he talked about this a bit on the Ready Room. And there was a really fun Ready Room this week with him, obviously, Will Wheaton and Brent Spiner, who is literally just like a dad joke just as a human. <laughs> like, it, he, like he, there was not an ounce of sincerity that came out of his voice. Every answer he had was some sort of like sarcastic pun. But I, I really encourage people to check it out. But uh, according to Frakes, he was initially just brought on to direct episodes four and five. And then while he was there, people pulled him aside and were like, oh, yeah, so we'd like to bring Riker back. What do you think? And he vocalized a really interesting perspective, which is, to your point, Jess, he has been around the Trek franchise, I'd say, the most out of anybody from TAG, maybe out of anybody of the entire Trek franchise. I'm pretty sure he's directed at least one episode in every series since Next Generation. But to that point, he hasn't acted in every series since Next Generation, and he was very surprisingly nervous about playing Riker again. And it's a bit different than someone like Jerry Ryan playing Seven of Nine as to like getting back into the character. I think for Jonathan Frakes, it was more about just like acting again, you know, especially against Patrick Stewart, who's been doing this for a while. Marina Sirtis was just in a play in West End at the time. And honestly, you could kind of tell, like, I, I'm going to gush all over this episode. This was my favorite episode. There was so much great stuff in here. But I kind of feel like the first scene between Riker and Picard, it really did feel like it was Jonathan Frakes. Like, it did not feel like William Riker whatsoever. And that being said, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I, I get that a little bit. And I think it's also like we're so hyped for it and we know it's happening and they're bringing back all the original actors. They're getting the band back together. And I think that makes it a little hard to immerse in it right out of the gate. Right. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, when you see, you know, uh, a character from go on to another sitcom and then like someone from that other sitcom comes on to appear you know it's like a tongue-in-cheek role your mind does get a bit removed to it now granted these are people reprising their roles and i think you know we you correctly predicted this last episode that nepenthe would definitely be a sort of like let's sit down and sort of figure out where we are type of stuff at least on the actual titular planet elsewhere there's still a lot of stuff going on but this really was sort of like a setting the table getting our belongings and trying to figure out where we go in the next few episodes. But at the same time, we still found out a lot about these two beloved characters and what happened to them since the events of Star Trek Nemesis. So there was still stuff to learn about them as characters and how that fundamentally changed them as people. 
Yeah, Mike, did it surprise you that Riker and Troy became parents? I mean, the last time we saw them was really effectively their wedding. Yeah, well, also, I mean, uh, Troy has technically been a parent before, lest we forget. I think that was actually <laughs> the, the, little the light first baby. E- yeah, I think that was that might have been like the first episode of season two, actually, I believe the first Pulaski episode when she became pregnant with the little yep. light baby that matured faster than Soji did. It be- became basically like a full grown adult and then sacrificed itself. Uh, so, I mean, she had that brim- brief stint of parenthood. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, the whole Riker-Troy dynamic was something that I understood as a latecomer to TNG that, like, it was always going to be part of the endgame. But I feel like there was actually only a handful of times when they actually sort of flirted with it. It was also derailed by the fact that they decided to push Troy and Worf at us, uh, surprisingly, in the seventh season. So, you know, it was always like a compli- It was not like a Sam and Diane thing for me. So to think that they sort of continued their family is just something I never imagined. Maybe it's just because I hadn't given much thought to their relationship in the first place, considering how, you know, on and off, or I guess just sort of spotty it was represented wise over the course of TNG's run. Yeah, well, it's like it's almost like they dated in high school and then came full circle. It's like it's like the This Is Us version of Star Trek. <laughs> Ooh, this is USS? Yes, this is USS. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you see them together, they really are good for each other. I mean, I think the the most representation I get is probably it's weird to say, but like Star Trek First Contact where the two of them are really on the mission to get Zephyrin Cochran up in that makeshift rocket and to see them sort of bounce off each other and work together from a, a longer capacity, not just through a 42-minute episode, maybe sort of realize how good they are for each other. And to your point, they've had their flirtations before. Like, I remember there was an episode, uh, actually a very <laughs> hated episode, where it was the two of them on, like, a, a date with Loxana Troy, and then they get kidnapped by Ferengis. That's when Picard <laughs> has to do the whole fake sonnet to Loxana Troy to get her back. Uh, so it's clear that, like, they were very clearly into one another. Of course, it's complicated by the whole Thomas Riker episode as well and of course the wharf of it all so it's good to see them come back together it seems like the two of them are happy with each other as well i just feel i mean absolutely gutted for what they had to undergo you always feel bad jess for like those characters who it's weird to say like they did nothing wrong they didn't deserve that tragedy in their life because like does anybody really deserve that type of tragedy in their life but to see characters we love have to you know live with that type of sadness it's 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 tough to sort of meet them in that moment. Yeah, and this is just testament to the fact that this is a very, very different Star Trek because I don't think any Star Trek series prior to this one would have baked this into the backstory of some of its most beloved characters. And, you know, we've seen that the, we've seen twice now, it's not afraid to kill characters we have some familiarity with and that it would give this kind of tragedy to to some of its major players to and watch us grapple with it and have it kind of inform how we feel about this universe and make us i think again distrust the federation even more and start to think oh, this is not the perfect utopia that we were shown in prior iterations of star trek i think it's it's really dark and it's really it it's a it's a tough way to have to think about this universe that has seemed like such a great place for so long. 
Are you implying that Thad Riker is a Borg, Jess, considering that all of the like canonical major characters we've seen die so far have been either have have all been XBs? I I think it's the opposite, actually. It sounds to me like it sounds to me like something like a Borg could have saved his life. Like maybe if yeah, he'd th- been a Borg, he would have been okay. Imagine if they like, we need to find a Borg you. We need to assimilate our son so he'll <laughs> avoid his disease. But yeah, I mean, obviously like this one uh, I mean, this one really hit me. You talk about becoming a parent, but like, y- you could feel something when Troy says, "Like, okay, you can stay in Thad's room," and you see Marina Sirtis take this ever so brief pause and like the smallest of deep breaths before going into his room. And when you see how like immaculately kept yet sort of haunted it is, you you get a sense as to why. Like, I don't know. I don't think they they say how much time has passed since. Thad had died. I believe he's the he, it's he's the he's Kester's older brother, and they said he was going to be like eighteen this year. But we don't exactly know how long they've been on Nepenthe for. But I mean, they're still clearly grieving. I know that she says that the ache gets a little less every day, but like there's still memories there, uh, understandably so, because it's an, I cannot imagine what they had to go through, especially since to your point, it's one of those really big ironic tragedies of you know hey he could have possibly been cured of this fatal disease had there been positrons to culture in but there were no positrons to work with because of the synth ban and it's one of those things we're not even talking about you know uh, a disbelief in the federation but more so you know when certain laws and stipulations are made sometimes it's forgotten like how will that affect people in the day-to-day and this is something that Obviously, we had no idea about, but it really makes you think of like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, not just the idea of Android technology, but this idea of synthetic science in general probably had a lot of different uses besides just creating creepy robots. Yeah, and this is where I start to cast some skepticism on this synth ban because it really seems like it would be very hard for your positronic matrix in your like petri dish analog of whatever you grow the positronic matrix in really seems like it'd be very hard for that to gain sentience and destroy mars so (laughs) i'm really having a hard time with this particular aspect of the synth ban well listen like you got to start somewhere you know if you if you don't stop the positronic cells they might grow up to become you know some some killing robots that'll apparently cause vulcans to tear their faces off in a future vision yeah, I that whole thing was also very creepy. But I suppose we'll get into that. But I think maybe we want to stay on Nepenthe for a little while longer because I think we still have a lot to unpack. I think that there's certainly this tragedy that they're grappling with. And I think even though we don't really know anything at all about that, I think it hits us just as hard because these are characters that we have loved for a very long time. Um, but I want to go back to like the very first the very first glimpse we see of Riker because this was such a different father-child moment than we've ever seen on Star Trek before. And it's maybe my favorite thing that has happened so far in this series because – You mean you mean the what? Yeah. It's like stop yelling. Yeah. Because that's real. That's how parents and children interact. And every parent and child up to this point, especially on TNG, but even on the later series, like, 
the, the child would run up and be like, hello, father. I'm so glad to see you. Oh, my child. And it's so like stilted and formal and children don't talk like that on any planet ever, anywhere. So to have, to have Kestra come in and like immediately like start yelling across the field to her dad and them being a little bit annoyed with each other in this very hyper familiar way was, it was really fun and really real. You know, that being said, I feel like, at least from the one example we saw, I think Riker and Troy are awesome parents. Say what you want to about like whether or not we would actually see them become parents, but it really does seem like, and maybe it's because Kestra really hasn't had anybody besides Captain Crandall for company. Like She definitely seems like the person who her parents are her best friend. But that being said, it seems like they're very chummy with one another they're still using Thad's languages together like she might have a couple of moments where she sort of bristles at being dismissed but for all Riker says about you know the pains of dealing with a teenager it seems like she has a pretty good relationship with her parents especially comparatively to what it could be at that age yeah it's pretty ideal if she's not she's not stealing spaceships and like um abusing snakeweed yeah, exactly. Like there's a there's a lot of it like listen, if this, you know, if this soil has regenerative properties, like you could really get a certain business going. Uh, you know, Raffi, I'm surprised they didn't leave her behind on the Penthe. She could really make a new business out of it. Well, you know, they never said how Riker and Troy are making a living these days. And yeah, I know cash-free society, uh, you know, post-capitalism, but you know, they that's a pretty nice house. They got to build that somehow. I'm I'm just saying. I- I don't know. Do you think, uh, I, you know what? I could imagine with Rikers now, I wouldn't say newfound, but like more focusing on his gourmand status. I would not be surprised if he had like a little food truck runabout, you know, that he would run down to Infinity Lake to sell his wood fired pizzas. Okay. So here's my hot take. If we're going to talk about, are we going to go to Riker and the pizza right now? Yeah, we can go to Riker and the pizza. Why not while we're on the topic? Well, this is early in the podcast for me to get this, this turned, Mike. I'm just warning you. All right, well, let's get the bad stuff out of the way then. Let's get the venom sack out of the uh, the bun corn or whatever it was before we put it on the pizza. Yeah, it, bunny corn, is that what this is? Is this like a bunny and a unicorn? Yeah, I can imagine it's like, I guess it's it's sort of like a jackalope, but with a horn. Or maybe it's part bunny, part corn. I don't know. That sounds more delicious. Other way, it just looks like you're like off-brand rabbit from the one that we saw. Yeah, like the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, they're on a planet with rabbits. I, I mean, is this a is this plant is this rabbit endemic to this planet, or did they accidentally introduce them and they've taken over the way that they did in North America? Yeah, well, at least they didn't pull like a TOS and like put a bunny with like some yarn on it and called it a new creature. Yeah, that's. I guess that's fair. And it, who knows? A, technology has gotten pretty good on the production side of things. That could have just been a CGI bunny, right? Exactly. But I, I love the idea of of the bunny corn. Like when you make jerky out of it, the jerky tastes like tortilla chips. <laughs> or I, I mean, I do wonder if they found out about the venom sacks the hard way. You know, like were they given sort of the orientation of the penthe? Because it. I don't know how populated the planet is. It really does seem like they're fairly remote. Or did they just happen to bite into one nowadays and realize like, oh, yeah, oh, we're feeling pretty sick afterwards. Like that just wasn't the, the bunny corn. That was this little part of the bunny corn. Let's let's avoid doing that. Let's do some trial and error here as we work on our pizza. We got to make sure we sell them at Infinity Lake, you know, come the summer. Yeah, th- those are not corn kernels. <laughs> no, definitely not. Something else has come out of there that is much, much worse. Yeah, it's it's pretty noxious. But apparently you can instantly cure your bunny corn and make sausages out of it, which is a pretty neat trick. 
Yeah, I mean, technology in the future. Like, I know that it does seem like Riker is a sworn off replicated food, taking the whole Robert Picard method of, you know, authentic only. But I can imagine you could take some shortcuts, you know? Yeah, I mean, they'd have to. They'd have to. Unless they've got, like, something in the future that's like an instant pot for curing your meat. I don't know. I mean, they have nothing but time out there, to your point, as it seems. So maybe they sat there with Picard for like half a day, just waiting for the meat to be cured and passing the time. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that's the reason. Okay, we're just we're just going to do this now, Mike. Maybe that's the reason the pizza is so GD small. Did you see the size of this pizza? This is a personal pizza. And they are serving it to five people. This is a pizza that should be served to one person. What kind of what kind of freaking host is Riker that he makes this teeny tiny pizza? Like one of the tomatoes falls off of it. And like there's what, three tomatoes on there total? It is absolutely unconscionable that this is all he feeds his guests. Such small portions in the Riker Troy household. I'm saying he can't be this genius chef if he's going to serve them and like, oh, guests get two. Yeah, two bites? What is that? <laughs> like feed, yeah, would- feed your guests a real meal, Riker, or GTFO. I mean, maybe that speaks to my own gluttony, but if uh, my special privilege of staying at the house was two slices of small pizza instead of one, I would feel like I was being starved or tortured for some reason. Like, is this a kidnapping? Technically, am I being held here against my will and forced to eat only small pieces of pizza to subsist? Yeah, it, it, it's very, very strange. And I guess like, Oh, well, if it's really high quality ingredients, you don't need to eat a lot of it. Like maybe this is a very peculiarly 21st century American way of looking at your food, but that is not enough food. Mm, I guess I was surprised that Troy did not, you know, followed up with a dessert of something chocolate unless she's kicked that habit as well, in which case she really has changed. Well, if they can't get replicated ingredients and they're kind of out in the boonies and that seems like a pretty temperate climate. Maybe they don't have any chocolate. And I really I feel can- like Troy is getting the short end of the stick if she let Riker move her to some place where they don't have chocolate. Oh, boy. That's definitely not news to anybody that Deanna Troy is getting the short set of the stick of anything when it comes to Star Trek. But maybe she has her own secret stash. I could totally imagine that at this point. You know, she's like, she's out here in the boonies. She's wearing her Star Trek nemesis hair. She's ready to just sort of let her hair down and be whoever she wants to be, a secret chocolate stash and all. Yeah, I I guess so. Like, just because I didn't see the chocolate stash doesn't mean it's not there. And she seemed like she was pretty relaxed and calm and having a good time out there. So, though that could be again the stuff that they might be growing aside from the uh, the basil. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, but apparently, the supercharged soil makes great basil too. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe there's something in that soil that's just supercharging everything. You know, I and when we see Rafi later give Gerardi uh, all those pieces of cake, like. The way she was implying, like, let me serve you up something special, like, there might have been something in there, too. This might have been a very laced episode of Star Trek Picard, Jess. Oh, I 100% thought that Rafi was going to get her high. I mean, which would have made things both better and worse for Gerardi. We'll certainly get into that, but it definitely would have lessened her anxiety, but it also would have definitely loosened up her lips to reveal many, many things. Yeah, I, I kind, I'm kind of sad we didn't get that. Um, I do want to mention one more thing about the idyllic setting of Nepenthe, and I want to give a shout out to Albert Vargas for pointing this out. Um, he says, please don't forget to mention that the Riker Troy family live in the same cabin John Candy rented in the great outdoors. Oh my God. He includes a picture, and I gotta say, it does look like the same building. That's so interesting. I mean, I guess it's getting, 
some play, I suppose. Oh, if only they were. If only John Candy was alive to make a cameo as some sort of like. Maybe he could have been Captain Crandall. You know. Yeah, I I would have been here for that. Or maybe they're just gonna like shoot all of the hair off of the ass of a bunny corn. I also uh, got something from Vaughn Kramer that says Nepenthe was a teen dance club in Fort Lauderdale in the eighties. Uh, I mean, the the actual name Nepenthe is super interesting uh, because I believe it's from the it specifically refers to the Odyssey in which Odysseus's wife uh, sort of indulged in her own vice, her own drug called Nepenthe, and it sort of refers to this idea of like a mythical cure or this idea of like quelling sorrow. And obviously, considering the reason why the Troy Riker family went there in the first place. That makes a lot of sense, but also it serves a much larger purpose. You know, this is a huge episode for Soji. I'm glad they took the time for Soji to not immediately take Picard's hand and get settled into the earth-shaking reality that she is an android. And so this is sort of like her coming to terms with her own heartbreak and sorrow. Picard is sort of finding his own mythical cure as to he feels lost, which I thought was a really interesting, you know, arc for him as well. So there's a lot going on here. It's more than just a name. Yeah, well, I you don't name. I, I I guess I shouldn't say this, Mike, because we've spent most of the first half of this season talking about people's cat walking across the keyboard and spilling a bag of Scrabble tiles. But when the name comes from somewhere, it usually means something pretty big. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it it just makes so much sense on a thematic level. Though it appears we're going to a planet that doesn't even have a name. So I think I'm just like holding on to this meaning for a while until I start getting into numerology next week. Well, is this like when – I really feel like if you are living on a planet and nobody else lives on that planet and that planet just has a number, not a name, it's like when you live on a rural route way, way far out of town and then the city comes to you one day and is like, well, we have to name the street you live on, as has happened to a couple friends of mine who – they lived way out of town and then the city made them give a name to their street – and so they get to call it whatever they want. So I feel like if you live on a planet that only has a number, you can call that planet whatever you want. Like you get, you get naming rights. Mm, yeah, I'm, like I, I assume that the nickname was like Planet Maddox, right? That he was coining it himself. He just didn't want to obviously clock it with any sort of federation, or else people would notice it. So they, he decided to just keep it with a number. But he always knew in his heart that it was Planet. Yeah, Maddox. like I, he wouldn't want to put that on the books anywhere. Like they're just looking it up. Like, huh? Planet Maddox, what, wasn't that the name of that guy that was doing all those illegal experiments? And we haven't heard from him in a while. I wonder if he's there. But uh, So spe- speaking of not hearing from people for a while, I mean, I, I just, I I could go on and on about, you know, that this storyline, the Nepenthian storyline from this episode, because I'll admit, we live in a very nostalgia-focused, reboot-heavy culture. Uh, to the point where, you know, when Star Trek Picard was announced, I was excited. But at the same time, I was a little trepidatious that it would just be a TNG reunion. That being said, I absolutely love this episode with all my heart. I mean, this was my favorite episode of the series so far. Uh, you know, it, it just had a beautiful hearkening back to those days of yore. And you could tell that meant a lot for Picard as well. I would be super intrigued to hear from people who are not fans of TNG or even haven't seen TNG and have started Star Trek with Picard, like if this episode meant as much to them, because obviously to those of us that have spent so much time invested in these characters, to see them come back, to see them embrace one another, to see Riker and Picard sort of having this like grumpy old men moment out 
the lake where, you know, he's saying, thank you for not convincing me uh, to turn away from this crazy mission. And Riker says, like, I, you know, I, I'd never be able to do that. It was just, it's a really cool moment where these characters are both acknowledging each other and all their old faults, but also acknowledging new things as well. I, I loved Riker and Troy sort of taking Picard to task and being like, yeah, you taught us a lot and you know a lot, but you do not know anything about how to parent. And like it or not, Soji is your kid right now, and you need to learn how to communicate with her. I thought it was a really cool subversion of roles and a really cool arc. So, you know, I'm glad that they held off on this for such a long time. I know that I was surprised to see this reunion come so late, but Picard vocalized how this is really his hour of need, where he left Earth with a mission and a crew and a ship, and now he doesn't have any of that. Instead, he just has... One very confused, very angry android girl. And he was able to find guidance here. Well, Mike, I think the amazing thing that they did this episode was it makes sense both as a standalone piece for people that only know Picard. And it also was such a deep and well thought out continuation of the story for people that are very steeped in the lore. So that you did push this plot forward, you gave a backstory to these characters so that even if you didn't know who they were and you'd never seen them before, you know who they are and what they're about. And yet, if you already knew them, you learn something new about them. And every little detail of all of our interactions with Riker and Troy, this episode, are just so rich and full of information, right up to the name of Kestra, their daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that, that like, as soon as I found out that connection, that, like, hit me in the heart, straight down the center, you know, in the Durbtanium. Yeah, that was, that was really rough. Um, Kestra being the name of Deanna Troy's older sister, who also passed away. Right, to the point where this is found out in a, actually a surprisingly dark Loxana's Troy episode called Dark Page, I believe, where it turns out that she has been repressing this secret that when Deanna Troy was a baby, her six-year-old sister uh, drowned during a family picnic, and she has kept them a secret. I don't believe Troy even knew who, about Kestra at all until that episode, and so for Troy to name her daughter after, you know, a member of her family who she never even knew is like a, a, a fascinating and incredibly beautiful gesture in itself. Yeah, it's it's very lovely. Um, original Kestra, by the way, played in some scenes by Kirsten Dunst. Whoa, really? Yeah, really. They, they had two different actresses uh, because there are in this episode, there are some dream sequences featuring Kestra Troy, and then there's also some actual flashbacks of what really happened. And in the dream sequences, Kestra is played by Kirsten Dunst. Oh, you know what? I think I remember that now as like a did you know type of person. Man, well, I mean, if we're flash forwarding to the other Kestra, Lulu Wilson, who plays this Kestra, I thought she was awesome. Uh, people might remember her, uh, those who loved Haunting of Hill House on Netflix a couple of years back. She was one of the flashback kids. She was young Shirley, and I thought she was like the perfect amount of precocious. Yes, she was super intrigued by Soji on a number of levels, one of them being that's another freaking person for her to talk to, so much so that she peppered her with questions. But like, I felt a genuine sweetness out of her, and I thought she did a really great job portraying that character. She definitely did, which I think is 
a testament to great casting, but also to great writing. And again, mm-hmm. children are not something that Star Trek has historically done very well. And to have a child in there with like, who's just exuding personality and who, you know, throws a wrench in the works by asking inappropriate questions and who kind of talks on and on about herself without really being polite or, you know, being a miniature adult who is super duper formal with the adults around her. I thought, I thought it was the most realistic child character we have seen on Star Trek maybe ever. Yeah, and that really culminates in her final scene with Soji, not where she gives her the broken-ass compass, but, you know, when when they're talking in the bedroom and Kestra, you know, has been very cheerful and very, uh, you know, just so interested in everything over the course of this episode. And we finally get to see a little bit of that tragedy, Eakin, where, you know, again, like Troy said, you know, Kestra's ache lessens a little bit every day and you get that feeling, but at the same time, that ache is always going to be there, no matter what. There's always going to be a dull sensation of that loss. And so when she talked to the end about to Soji about, hey, I know you're hurting right now. I'm hurting too, but in a different way. But what helped me was finding someone. And Picard might be that someone. And I definitely want to talk about, obviously, like the Soji-Picard of it all, because that's a really interesting relationship, especially with how it differs from the Dodge-Picard surprisingly so but I-, I do sort of love the parallels that kestra drew there even though like we said what we know of her is largely from stuff that happened off screen she was able to really make a connection with that character which i think even surprised soji yeah i and i think well i think the way that soji is approaching this episode is all very fascinating. I think we called it last week, Mike, when we said that Soji's going to come in here. She's just had her whole world shaken up. Uh, she is unsure that, you know, she she's just learned her mother isn't real and all of her stuff that she thought she'd collected over the course of a lifetime is the same age as she is, which is three years old and not like 21 as she thought. And then after all of this happens, Picard shows up and says, hey, your sister sent me to look for you. She's like, well, I was just told I don't have a family, so I don't have a sister, so I don't know what your motive is, but why are you using my fake, not-at-all-real sister to try to get into my good graces? And Mm -hmm. are you even real? Is anything happening that's real? Is this kid asking me all these invasive questions real? It it's a really weird place for Soji to be right now. Yeah, it's, I, I love that first conversation just because, I mean, Picard shows this episode that he does have faults. And one of them being that, again, I, I think he was sort of under a guise as to how this conversation would go from what happened with Dodge, which was significantly easier, right? Dodge, for whatever reason, saw Picard in her mind. So she sought out Picard. She knew, for some reason, I have to trust you. When Picard broke the news to her, like, she did have that small moment where she's like, I'm a monster, I'm a machine, but she seemed to, like, be relatively okay with it. Here, Soji's like, oh my god, everything's fake, my family, my childhood, my sister, and Picard does, like, the worst breaking of good news, bad news ever. Like, no, 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 wait, good news, your sister is real. 
bad news. She is dead as a doornail. She has exploded at this point. We're still not sure if it was the Romulan Venom or if it was the exploding disruptor, but we're definitely sure that she is very, very dead. I'm sorry to break this to you now. So, like, no wonder Soji has the reaction she does to him. He is not the best at bedside manner when, as Troy has to bring up much, much later on, as you said, like, her reality has been shattered. She has been manipulated and tortured to fill a certain function and i think she says like uh there's you know a a glitch in her programming as it were and she has been trying to reprogram herself yeah and even even before picard totally flubs the breaking of the bad news he's the one that brings it up in the first place which is really really not a good move there like he is talking to kestra in the woods and I guess he thinks he's trying to speak in code or something, but Mm. he can't rely on a child to talk around something in a sophisticated enough way that she's not going to just spill the beans entirely. And so when he's like, yes, do you remember your dad talking about Commander Data? Immediately, the first thing she's going to be like, oh, he's an android. So is she an android too? And it's just like you can hear the like breaking glass sound going off in Soji's head at that moment. It's like, Come on, Picard. Like maybe at least wait till everybody's sitting down and eating their tiny pizza before you start dumping the heavy news on her. I my my appetite's gone. No, it's not because I barely had two inches of this pizza. Uh, yeah, I I mean I think that I think Issa Briones does a really great job in this episode of really reconciling with what happened because you might say like oh it's she it was frustrating that like she wouldn't believe anybody but. I, you mentioned this before, like, during that conversation, she just walks away saying, whatever, this isn't real, just get on with the mind game. And it's it's this weird, like, simultaneous denial, yet sort of acquiescing to what she thinks are her settings. Because let's remember, like, not only was she betrayed just with her worldview, she was betrayed by the person that she loved. And so the fact that the person closest to her, that that was her Brutus makes her fundamentally distrust anybody. And it's interesting that she said she especially distrusted Picard. Maybe it's just because this was this guy who, like, dragged her out of this situation and said, come with me if you want to live. But she is really, really reticent to trust him. And I thought the scene between her and Troy was really nice. A, it was a great way for us to sort of find out a bit more about the thad of it all. But also Troy coming in with this perspective of, like, sometimes real isn't good. You know, sometimes being human comes with undergoing these terrible losses, and that informs us as to who we are. So even though you might consider yourself not human, you still undergone something that is essentially human at its core. Yeah, it's true. Like, it's almost at that point, it doesn't really matter if she's human or not, because she's has to respond to the situation like a human. Yeah, and I, I really liked... Uh, you know, the, the small steps that you see Soji take as well. In her scene with Kestra, the first scene when they're in the bedroom, uh, when, you know, Kestra's listing off Data's resume about playing the violin, uh, wanting to be Sherlock Holmes. There was that weird episode where that comedian in the holodeck tried to teach him <laughs> how to tell a joke. And you see Issa Briones, you know, say, you know, ask about her, I guess, quote unquote, father. And she takes the slightest of pauses before she says data. And you could tell it's like almost like she's having trouble saying the word. Like she still can't believe that this is a part of her reality. 
but she does get it out. And I think by the end of the episode, when she's revealed this unnamed planet, Planet Maddox, might be her home world, I think she has finally gotten used to the waters that she just got thrown into. But it took a while to do so, and I'm glad they did that. You know, I, I think it's a bit more realistic to the character than just having her drop down and be like, I don't know what's going on, but let me tell you literally everything that's happened, and I'm going to run with you no matter what. Right. And I think I'm going to I'm gonna slaughter a sacred cow here right now, Mike, because I think we can contrast this with some of the space-based quest stories that have gone before. Um, like, if you think about, Mike, for instance, the first 15 minutes of Star Wars A New Hope – you have Luke Skywalker, the farm boy, living with his aunt and uncle. And within the first 15 minutes, he beats this crazy guy who lives out in the desert. And his aunt and uncle get brutally murdered. And the mm. creepy old guy- they have, they have the, Yeah, they become their own wood-fired pizza, as it were. <laughs> Indeed. And that's, that's a big-ass pizza right there. Like extra bunny corn sausage. <laughs> yeah, you could, yeah you, could, you could feed all the sand people with that. You definitely could, um, even if we don't know how many they are because they're walking in single file to hide their numbers. Um, yeah, so he gets a mysterious message and he just goes with this strange old guy that he's talked to like twice before. And all of a sudden he's like, yep, this is my life now. I'm going to do the thing and never really adjusts to it at all. Right, exactly. Like, I think because they took the time to build out Soji as a character, they didn't feel like they had to fast track this development uh which i was happy with because again she was able to take advantage of the fact that and maybe this also uh is due to the fact that nepenthe is such an idyllic beautiful world that seems almost out of a postcard that yeah you could argue that someone like soji would believe this is fake that this is just another trap like she thought she'd had escaped you know the true mind game but she's actually in another one now i could absolutely imagine why her walls are up at this point and to see it come down over the course of a group effort around the small pizza you know you see picard initially try to ply her for information about her dreams at the dinner table but it really takes this impassioned speech uh from him and it already hearkening back all the way to like the first episode where he says you know i was spending my days in a vineyard and i wasn't really living but now i'm alive and i have a mission and it's finally, I think, that sense of initiative that makes her trust him. Not him running through his weird body symptoms that shows <laughs> that he's not lying. Not Riker saying he's the best captain that the, he's ever seen. It's Picard really revealing, I think, his own vulnerabilities to show that, you know, this is not a trick. I am someone who is going to be truthful to you, and I hope the same to me. Yeah, so Mike, you're saying all of this time we spent getting to know Soji, you're saying you're fine with all of the um, Borg Cube Valley High of it all? Oh boy, don't put words in my mouth, Jess, and not put words in bunny corn in my mouth. I would say the Soji stuff I was fine with. It's the Narek stuff, and I think as I've discovered this, the, the Rizzo stuff as well, that still has not really settled with me, mainly because the three-dimensionality of the Soji character was promptly balanced out by the two, and in some case, one-dimensionality of those characters. It's true. I, I realized this episode that I think I think my entire issue with that plotline is it's like 90% Nerissa, who is a terrible character, and 10% Narek, who is 
a C minus character. Yeah, and that the thing is, and I guess we could talk a little. We could go to the board cube now because R.I.P. Hugh will give his eulogy uh, in a little bit. But I think you know there was a really fascinating moment where, unfortunately, after the poor, God, the poor, uh, you know, mass execution of all the XBs, and Rizzo is taunting Hugh, basically saying like what you did was jeopardize, you know, a mission that took years to put in place across dozens of star systems, and you potentially jeopardized trillions of lives across the galaxy. Like, this reminds us this Star Trek adage of like, okay, even the quote-unquote villains still have POVs, right? They still have rationales behind everything, and that the Jat of Ashra ultimately working to prevent what they think is an apocalypse at the hand of this destroyer and it really makes me wish that we saw like more of how that drives this character outside of her just being like a very ruthless violent person because i could understand why it does that but there really is no dimension to her character besides that yeah she's like every saturday morning cartoon villain that's like oh i want to stop the care bears and keep them from caring and take all the caring out of the universe it's like why exactly yeah but why all the XBs need to do a Care Bear share. That's what they should have done. That's what they, I think that's what they were lined up to do, actually. <laughs> exactly. Well I, well, I think actually to that point, maybe what I'm – I mean, I'm loving so much about Picard so much that I guess like Rizzo is really like the one Achilles heel for me to make another Greek mythology reference. I think it's because, honestly, she seems like one of the villains you would see in a one-off like Star Trek TNG episode – but now has been stretched across multiple episodes of a serialized TV show. And you realize in that capacity that it's fine for a 42-minute episode, but it doesn't work across seven hours. I think I'd still be bitching about it if it was a 42-minute episode. But at least you ditch her and like move on to a more complicated villain. You know, now we're sort of we're viewing things through the Jot Vosh representation is her and Narek. And while Narek is the more complicated character, though not this episode, he's playing with his fidget spinner and, you know, <laughs> trying to tailgate the La Serena. Uh, but, you know, outside of that, it, it really doesn't seem like we're, we're not getting a lot of complications from a character perspective. More so the complications arise when we finally see, like, the, the O mind melt, for instance, and we get to see from a more mythological perspective exactly what these people are fighting for yeah i think i think the structural problem that we've had with this with this series so far is that they have chosen to withhold from us what the bad guys are about and i think we're starting to learn why they did that but it makes it really hard to tell a story where you really understand all of the sides of it and can fully sympathize with the people you're supposed to be rooting for because if you don't know what the bad guys are about, then it's just like you're not emotionally invested in it. Like you can't really right. – I can't even – I can't even really hate her. Except, I can't hate the Jat Vosh except in that I hate that they're so – that they're so flimsy. But – I mean you have to hate him now, Jess. <laughs> she killed Hugh. Yeah, I mean I, I hate her for that, but I, I feel like I even – I feel like I hate her even more because Hugh's death should have been better. It should have mm. meant something. It should have we should have felt like they were killing him for a reason. And right now I don't I don't have that feeling because I don't know what they're about. It's just like, oh, we hate robots. We're gonna kill the robot. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, part of me feels 
I don't know. Like, I'm happy that Hughes did only because like it was brutal to watch all those XBs get done da- gunned down, and you knew. I mean, he talked about it with Elnor, like how guilty he must have felt. You know, as executive director, he felt responsible for these people who he personally helped rehabilitate. At least he didn't, you know, live with that on his conscience for too much longer. Uh, but I will say that was a genuinely shocking moment, considering that we were all in, right, on, like, the hand-to-hand Elnor v. Rizzo, choose your fighter and let's get it on type of stuff. And then she just throws out this uh, Shenzon from Star Trek Nemesis knife, and it just impales itself into Hugh's neck as a bystander. Yeah, and that was an even worse death. It was just a gut punch because you spent so much time up to this point learning about uh, how he's bringing hope back to a hopeless world and something we'd previously been told was not possible and he's helping to bring all of these former bro- Borg drones back to humanity. <laughs> bro drones. Yeah, bro drones. They're total bros because they all just kind of laid down and died for him. And then like he did all this work and it's this beautiful thing bringing hope back to where there was no hope and then they all died and then he died. And yeah, it's oh. it was it's it's dark, like you said. Like this was super dark because yeah, I can imagine. Like I don't know how much the how widespread the Borg reclamation project is because it does seem like you know the reason why Elnor has to SOS the Fenris Rangers is because seemingly all the XBs are dead on the Borg cube, meaning nobody can use that queen cell again, except. Maybe the former Romulans, but they are definitely not in a good place, I think, to help Elnor in any way. Yeah, we don't know what happened to the former Romulans. I think that's a good question. Are they still on the cube? I mean, I would assume that as ruthless as someone like Rizzo may be, you know, as much as she talks about like wanting to make loopholes in treaties, I don't know if she would kill fellow Romulans unless they were coming after her. Like, she'll clearly go after Elnor because even though he's a Romulan, he's working for somebody else. But I do wonder if she did try to, you know, pull a mass extinction on the, was the Dishonored, I think is the name of the of the XB Romulans, that that might be seen as like an attack on their people and might cross a line to whatever secrecy they're trying to maintain. Yeah, it was weird they highlighted this in the preview or in the previously on before the episode started, they showed you like, these are the only Romulans who've ever been assimilated as far as we know. And then we never saw them in the episode. So I have to imagine we're supposed to remember that they're there and wonder what happened to them. Yeah, the only connection that I saw, and this is only on my second viewing of the episode, was on the La Serena when they're still in the traffic beam uh tractor beam and rafi's trying literally everything and put the kitchen sink to get out of it i think she finds a picture from one of the romulans and it's these overlapping circles which we've seen a couple times obviously it was on the dodge and soji necklaces if you look at the two moons of planet maddox those sort of look like it as well so this might be linked to the whole prophecy too so maybe that link's happening there but like you said you sort of have to put two and two together and make a lot of connections with your own overlapping circles to figure out exactly where they come into the picture yeah i suspect we'll get the answer to that question next week um just because it looks like it looks like you still have romulans chasing elnor and i would suspect that in between the time that he is waiting for seven of nine to come up with cal with the cavalry and 
you know, the end of the episode, he's going to be wandering around the cube. And I think he probably stumbles on the psych ward where the Romulans are being kept. Yeah, it, you know, this this whole storyline completely surprised me because, like I said, I had, you know, the highest hopes that, OK, these two are just going to be able to jet off the board cube, escape on their own and then help Picard at the end of the season. But no, we pretty much picked up exactly from where they left off. It really did seem just that as much as Eleanor was going to try to become a renegade and take down all those Romulans, seems like they got subdued pretty quickly, considering that we see them being or at least uh, Hugh being interrogated by Rizzo. Maybe Eleanor was able to escape. And even though Hugh dies here and Elnor is able to find that Fenris Rangers tag, I don't know exactly like what the time is until Uber pickup. So he still might have to defend himself. But surprisingly, Elnor seems to be on his own for the foreseeable future, which is not how I expected this character to go. Well, yeah, especially considering I think we had this idea that he was sort of to bring back Star Wars into it again. He was sort of supposed to be the Chewbacca to Picard's Han Solo. And mm -hmm. that we separated them so quickly is kind of an interesting subversion of that trope. Because I think we thought – I had the impression at least that he was going to be sworn to stick close to Picard. And it's like, no, he's actually sworn to – protect this cause. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that he is going to be right on Picard all the time. And he's there to help Hugh. He's there like he is taking up Hugh's cause now. And it's, it's, you know, for all intents and purposes, the same cause, but that's very much in keeping with the Kawat Milat credo of, of taking up lost causes. And I thought that was, I think that was where none of us were expecting that story to go. Right. On top of that, I mean, this is the character that we are sort of painted as the blank slate, right? This is the guy that didn't didn't know what a con was a couple of episodes ago. And don't say con in Star Trek. But now he is undergoing this pretty traumatizing journey. He just, you know, even though he's killed people in a, in a more brutal fashion, Hugh just died in front of him. And this was a new friend. And now he has to fight his way out of this dark Borg cube. So, like, there are things that Elnor is going through that he never expected he would. Uh, you know, when the Kovat Milat head was talking with Picard, she was saying, like, oh, you know, he may die, but at least to live out there. And he certainly is. And I guess he sort of is undergoing his own trial by fire in a way and experiencing all these things on his own and getting a real trial by fire as to the way the world works. Mike, do you think you would term this his Rom Springer? Uh, oh, I love that. Oh, I love that so much. Yes, I would. 150,000%. <laughs> I would call this his Rom Springer. And, I knew you'd like that. Uh, and I mean, I don't know if this means he'll go back to the... He'll, maybe he'll have the choice to go back to the Kovat Milat, uh, you know, to go back to that planet at the end of the season. And he chooses to stay and just become a, a wild partier, just throwing back all that Romulan ale. But yeah, I mean... At least we'll get to see more Seven of Nine as soon as next week. And I think the pairing of her and Elnor is going to be super interesting, too. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of loving this. And I thought we were done with Seven of Nine. So it's great that we've already found a way to bring her back in and keep her as part of the story. And I, I love that you can summon the Fenris Rangers with a tile keychain. That's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't sure if you just like touch it. But like I love that a little message shows up. And it's sort of the opposite where... 
you know, I was not expecting 7 of 9 to show back up, and I was expecting Hugh to show back up at least a couple more times, only for him to die here. And I do see your point, Jess, that his death feels a little sudden and a little unfulfilled. But looking at his overall arc, I'm actually so, so happy that he decided to bring this particular character and Jonathan Del Arco into this series because he actually served a much larger purpose in retrospect than maybe we initially think, especially for just like, you know, uh, a one to two episode TNG character from the past because he was so instrumental in Soji, you know, trying to acclimate to life on the cube. He was really the only person that saw how she was the one not regarding the dead XBs with, you know, uh, with coldness. She brought warmth and compassion, which he definitely saw in her. And we talked about this last episode, but he was fundamental in Picard changing his opinion about the Borg. And when he said, you know, these are, they're not victims underneath they're you know, they're not monsters underneath their victims. And so Hugh is dead, but at least I guess he can die knowing the profound effect he had on these two characters uh, that are currently on the run and the fact that he sort of changed their lives for the better. Yeah, it, it's a really great way to bring back the character. And I think this is probably how it had to end. I just wish we knew what he died in service to. Right. What was his cause that he sworn himself to? Well, I mean, we know his cause, but I want to know the cause he was killed for. Right. Well, uh, speaking of that, I guess, you know, as we sort of segue into the Gerardi Rios Rafi bottle episode of it all. So, yeah, we, we have our flashback to start off this episode. And, Jess, we finally get the other side of the Shades conversation. You know, we assumed, we'd assumed since Agnes Gerardi's turn that, okay, we did not see the entire conversation when Commander O approached her and... Yeah, we were completely right, as she basically said, like, hey, you're going to work for us and chew on this tracker pill because this is what's going to happen, apparently, if synthetic life is to be accepted as a normality. Yeah, and this looked like some pretty grim stuff. Like, this was some uh, Willy Wonka candy <laughs> tunnel business happening here. Yeah, but they're not going to wind up in, like, the foam room afterwards with nary a word to say about it. Yeah, I mean, this looked crazy and there was a lot of flashes of stuff so i tried to like screen cap as much as i could but from what i could see it looked like there were a good amount of vulcans gathered in a circle maybe like seven or eight or so it seemed like in the center was some sort of robot but with human skin meant to resemble an android and then there are visions of like planets exploding and then you see these Vulcans like tearing at their skin and one of them blasts, you know, kills themselves with the disruptor. I'm trying to figure out, you know, I guess where this falls in the timeline, because we know the, the Jat Vash say, oh, they harbor a secret so terrible it drives them crazy. And I feel like we sort of saw that here. But since O did a mind meld, she's a confirmed Vulcan. So, I mean, did this take place like before the Vulcan Romulan split? of your is it just that the vulcans maybe saw the prophecy and are now working secretly with the romulans to to execute it i'm not entirely sure what's going on there well yeah mike that was going to be my question to you like we know that vulcans and romulans are genetically very similar does that mean that romulans could learn how to mind meld 
That would be. It seems pretty anti-Romulan to be able to pull secrets out of somebody's head. Exactly. Like you think like, oh, no, no, this, the secret's theirs to keep. I will make sure not to do that. But maybe that's the reason why they sought out the Vulcans. You know, maybe Spock's efforts in that reunification double episode ended up actually working out and they're working together. It's just for uh, a not so great cause. The other thing that I noticed has been sort of bandied about online that I find super interesting is there was one particular shot of a planet exploding that is eerily similar to in Star Trek Discovery Season 2 when Spock mind-melded with the Red Angel, a.k.a. Michael Burnham, uh, and saw a vision of control laying waste to a bunch of planets. And so that's really got people's minds stoked as to, okay, we are dealing with AI. Is control involved in some way in this? We spent a lot of time talking about control last year, Jess. Do you think there's a connection, or do you think they just wanted to reuse a visual effect? I think... They're probably pretty budget conscious if they're paying every original TNG <laughs> person to come back. I, I, I think, but I also think that nothing in this show is unintentional. And I think we are bent to notice whenever a tiny piece of it is stitched in from some other aspect of the universe. So I think it's a fair question. If this really closely resembles something we've seen before, that's not an accident. Right. Though, to your point, it could just be like, all right, what do we have in terms of planet exploding our sort of like Star Trek clip art thing? Oh, yeah, I guess it was this thing from Star Trek Discovery that was used for like half a second. Nah, nobody's going to notice. We'll just put it in there. Where's the stock footage of planets exploding that we can use? Yeah, I mean, maybe we weren't meant to because we were supposed to be really grossed out by the Vulcan event horizon of it all. Yeah, or Gerardi then subsequently puking. Though at least for the first the first one, we did not see the actual vomit coming out of her mouth. Yeah, but she, she seems like quite the nervous puker. She really does, which I'll say, you know, I, I think there's a lot to get into with, like, Gerardi's own inner psychology, but man... I love Chris Rios as a character, but I feel like he was pretty damn daft this episode, considering how much he's seen Gerardi having like a mental breakdown on board the ship to the point where she's like, I don't want to see the synth anymore. I'm good. I'm good. And then him being like, I think Rafi's being tracked. I think she's, <laughs> I think she might be a spy. I honestly just thought when that scene happened in Sick Bay that he was purposely accusing Rafi to gauge her sort of reaction and then say, no, 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 I know it was you. I just said it because I wanted to see if you would fess up to it. But no, he said he sincerely thought for half a second that Rafi was the one that was causing them to be tailed. Mike, I think you've been watching too much Survivor. I think because so. Because that's, that's a Survivor move and not everybody out in the world or out in space is necessarily playing Survivor all the time. Oh, uh, if only. That's the Star Trek series I want to see. Kurtzman... Hey, that's that's a Brant Steele we're going to do. That's true. That's true. But Kurtzman officially get on that. And I guess, you know, it's not like Rafi hasn't been suspicious. You know, she did tell Rios, like, did you know I have a son? Which seemed to come out of nowhere. He did point out that, like, she left them real quick on free cloud for whatever reason and then came at, came back just very, very despondent. So it really does seem like Rio, basically Rios has surrounded himself with people that are just acting really weird and he essentially flipped a coin. But I don't know, just the way that Gerardi was acting this entire episode was sketchy AF to me. Yeah, 
I don't know why nobody was more concerned about this. Like, oh, that guy keeps following us. And even though we're shaking him with amazing elusive maneuvers and oh, oh, Geradia, why are you so upset about this? What, what could possibly be the case here? And I, is she really, is she really that charming in the rest of her interactions with them that they're not going to be, that they're not going to immediately distrust all of this action yeah the only excuse which rafi points out in that cake scene is she's like oh she still might be in mourning over maddox which is why she's acting strange so i could understand why there's a little bit of a guise and maybe it's more obvious to us because obviously we know what's going on but she just seems like a complete nervous wreck and i think you know, Rafi's ears really perk up when, to the point when she's like, yeah, I know I'm a roboticist and this is my life's work, but I don't want to see it. I just want to go home. Please, like, take me home now. Press the play button. Yeah, or like, yeah, I don't think I want to go to this other planet. Can we just go to Disney in space or something? Yeah, exactly. Like, no, we, like, does anyone even want to go there? Does anyone want to even see Picard anymore? And they're you know, looking at her like she has three eyes. I will also say... Yeah, forget uh, Picard. Let's go party. Yeah, exactly. No, no. You know me. I love to party. Can we go back to Free Cloud again? I really am in the mood to, you know, fill Bejazel's spot. I will also say this has been something that has sort of been, like, on my radar but really hasn't been picked up like Narek until this episode, when it really was experienced in the, his first lines of the episode. But... Santiago Cabrera's real accent pokes through so much as Rios <laughs> Jess. Like he re- like he goes into that that like uh UK Irish brogue in the very beginning of the episode when he's yelling at Rafi. Like you could tell in moments when he's not focusing on it, he talks like the EMH. And that becomes a bit of a problem. It's it's sort of like the first time you hear Bronson Pinchot speaking not as Balky. Mm, exactly. And your your world is just blown and it's you can't unthink about it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know that Santiago Cabrera can do any accent at any time, except he's having a really hard time clinging to this particular one for some reason. Yeah. What do you think the the EHH is petty cuz like the EMH just shows up whenever somebody's feeling particularly medically uh, in danger. But Rafi, like, hailed the EHH when Gerardi puked all over the deck, and it didn't show up. Was it just like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I, I'm not a janitor. But well, I think the EHH's whole job is to clean up people's puke, and we don't know what the La Serena was doing before it picked up Picard. So... Maybe the EHH has a rough life and we need to lay off him. I mean, that's true. Considering how much Rios just likes to house alcohol all the time, it seems. And considering that it seemed like he had nobody around to really stop him. He wasn't even listening to the holograms. Like, I could imagine many, many rough nights for this poor EHH. Maybe he was taking its, like, union-mandated break and couldn't clean up the cake at the time. Yeah, maybe he's cleaning up some other puke somewhere else. I mean, you know... Rafi's probably having a rough time of things. Like, I don't know how much snake leaf she has secreted away, and I don't know what the withdrawal is like. Like, maybe there's another pile of pukies got to work on first. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, one thing at a time, please. I'm just trying to clean up all your human puke all over this spaceship for some reason. It just smells entirely <laughs> like puke all the time. La Serena is 
basically the dream sequence in Stand by Me. Yeah, or j- basically it smells like a like a bad Chuck E. Cheese at all times, you know, or it just feels like a little too sterile. Uh, and speaking of sterile, <laughs> I guess the the sick bay is really like the climax of this storyline because Gerardi is in a coma. Jess Gerardi, in a manner of speaking, sacrificed herself uh, by you know nullifying the tracker and shutting her body down. Well, the weird thing is, I guess, how did she know that the that was how the tracker worked? Like, maybe is this just technology that everybody knows about? Like, the tracker is in your bloodstream, and if you're conscious and everything is working, then everybody knows where you are. Like, does the tracker shut off when she goes to sleep? Or if she is knocked unconscious, would the tracker work? This is – it's it's weird that that was the thing that she had to do to make it work. And, like, how close to death is she and how comebackable is this? Well, I think to answer your last question, I think it's very comebackable. I do not think we're seeing Allison Pill in a coma for the remaining three episodes. I mean, if she is, it'd be an interesting choice. And at least, if, you know, if we're talking about a character arc perspective, it would sort of be like, you know – a good final beat for her to end on. We talked about this before, right? That even though we see Gerardi turn here, that she probably, she's a good person. She's a reasonable person. At the end of the day, she probably is going to side with Picard and turn on the Jot Vosh, despite what they showed her. But with regards to, yeah, the, the tracker, I guess if I'm going to put some headcanon in here, maybe the tracker went through her bloodstream and like implanted itself in her brain so when her brain is rendered not inoperable but less operable and her inducing a coma, then maybe the tracker shuts down then because it really has no activity to go off of? Like the tracker is I, – I assume the tracker is like some sort of nanobot situation, which again, right. that's hypocritical. Yeah, exactly. Like why why can why are nanobots allowed to exist? Especially like you anti-android cabals like, no, we're good with the, the Flintstones chewable trackers. No, those yeah. are fine. We can't we can't culture a cure for a neurological disorder in a positronic petri dish, but yeah, it's fine to like inject somebody with nanobots. So I mean Picard and Soji are going to come back on board and find out that not only is Gerardi in a coma, but I'm pretty sure Rio still suspects that Rafi's a mole. So this is a weird, weird ass ship for Picard to be coming back into. And also everything smells like puke. Yeah. And actually Picard's like, oh God, I forgot. I forgot that smell. I want to go back to the pizza planet, please. (laughs) Yeah. I'll eat tiny pizza for the rest of my life before I have to go back on the puke ship. Exactly. Like, no, or he'll just go to his ready room or like, I guess the hot, I'm assuming the little hollow room that they assembled includes like a smell as well that smells like the chateau so he doesn't have to smell the environment around him. I, I think that's probably most of the appeal of the holodeck on any starship. Yeah, though, I mean, appeal depends. Like, I wonder, like, for example, going back to the aforementioned uh, Data Sherlock Holmes episodes, if he really wanted it to smell like, you know, 18th century London, or if he decided to nullify that, because I feel like that could genuinely hamper the experience if, you know, everything smelled like horse manure. Yeah, I think you can adjust those situations. I mean, and also, Mike, we we know that even nowadays, when when NASA astronauts would go up into space for like two or three days, they'd come back and the inside of that space capsule smelled awful. Yeah. Exactly. I think you just get enough humans. Yeah, we don't know what like the shower situation is like on the La Serena. You know, was it outfitted with with every with a, a big enough 
bathroom. I can also imagine going back to the holodeck stuff when we went back to like the Dixon Hills sultry film noir days. Like you have to nullify the smell of cigarette smoke, right? Otherwise, oh, not, yeah. not only is it pilfering your nostrils the entire time, but you're going to be walking back to the bridge smelling like cigarette smoke for the next few days. Yeah, like Picard walks into 10 forward and everyone's like, well, I guess I know where you were. Yeah, and then they're going to all promptly live like, oh, God, I hate when they bring these types of guys into the bar. Yeah, just stinks up the whole place. Exactly. Yeah, or maybe maybe they we know they're post-capitalist. Maybe they're also post-smell. <laughs> it's really a post-smell society is what we idealize. That's really what Gene Roddenberry's initial vision was. <laughs> Yeah, although we, we know that they we know they still taste and smell is such an important component of taste. So, you know, you, you can still bite into a tomato and have that be appealing. So I'm going to guess that's not true. Yeah, I, actually, I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the replicated food doesn't smell. And that's why it's such like a big thing to have authentic food. It's sort of like if you um, if you eat if you eat only like bland food for an entire week and then you just pick up like one thing that's got some flavor to it, it's like a flavor explosion in your mouth. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's the thing is that ever the reason why people usually prefer authentic food over replicated food is just that there's spice in it and there's seasoning as opposed to the replicator, no matter what matrix you're using does not exactly have any sort of spice cabinet equipped to it. It's much like growing up in Montana <laughs> and then going out for Indian food when you're for the very first time when you're 21 years old. I love this. Maybe the uh, I mean, listen, Montana played a role in Star Trek First Contact. Maybe that's where the replicator was invented too. It, it, it's entirely possible, and maybe that's why replicator food still stays so bland because that's where they invented it in bland <laughs> food world. I love it. I love this hit, Kenyon, so much. Yes. Um. So I have a couple of like other random minutia that I want mm-hmm. to highlight. Um. I wanted to ask, why do Riker and Troy have so many candles on their dining room table? That's true. It was it's interesting decor. Uh, and are they scented candles? That's a good question. I would imagine not. I think with the rustic aspects of Nepenthe, they'll be able to actually take in the more natural smells. But I think that's another reason why they also went, you know, super rustic with the lighting as well. Even though it does, it did seem like. Riker's jazz was coming from some sort of like overhead sound system. Everything else actually seems pretty authentic, save that. And also, of course, the shields that Riker uh, activates once Picard gets there. It's classic Riker to like make his family live without overhead lighting, but he has a Sonos system and shields on the cabin. Exactly. Like, no, we can't we can't afford that, honey. Uh, but instead, let me go to like to gear heaven and make sure I invest in all my anti-cloaking devices. Yeah, the Nepenthe geek squad came in and like outfitted the house. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we'll give you a sweet sound system, too, while you're at it. But, you know, putting some lamps in here is a bridge too far. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, it, I mean, I guess your eyes get used to it, but it has to be hella difficult to like see in that candlelit dinner. Maybe that's why Soji felt like she couldn't trust Picard. It's because she couldn't look him in the eyes. Maybe that's why Picard had to describe what he looked like. Yeah, I think I think that's as good an answer as anything. I also want to talk about um it's not a good idea to smoke on a starship. Speaking of bad <laughs> smells, uh, is that a real cigar? Is it a replicated cigar? Is it a hologram? Is it a candy cigar? It, it cannot be like a combustible device in canned oxygen. That's that's just bad. Don't do that. Right. I mean, we talked about this when we first saw Rios, uh this idea of like in this society, when you know the carcinogenic effects of 
those types of products, why you would do it. I mean, maybe this is to your point, like a type of uh, cigar that does not have those properties. Maybe it's made out of something different. Maybe it's made out of something that isn't combustible. But knowing Rios, I feel like he was somebody who would like would want that natural feeling. And if he, you know, gets if he becomes sick from it, that just makes the experience more real and the hurt a little better. Yeah. So you're saying he intentionally barfs all over his deck. I maybe so because that lets him feel something, you know. <laughs> lets him yeah. know he's alive. Yeah, I mean, well, we can't all have wood-fired pizza ovens to make tiny real pizzas. Exactly. Like I, I wonder what they beamed up. Picard starts talking. He's like, "Wait a minute! Like, what, what, did you not invite us down? Like, do you realize what we just went through here? You didn't want to has to have a couple of small slices." <laughs> and they're like, "Look, we'll, we'll just replicate you a giant slice of cake, and then everybody <laughs> exactly. will be full." By the way, watch that spot on the floor. That's where the last cake ended up. <laughs> yeah, hope you left room for dessert. And if not, you can just make some room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That was <laughs> I'm not I'm not sorry. Um and my final piece of minutia, uh Kestra texting Captain Crandall under the table is maybe the most teenager thing anybody's ever done in Star Trek. Oh, I love that. And I, I, I love that, like, maybe for a second, Riker or Troy would bust her chops, right? This thing of like, hey, screen's off. We are at the dinner table, young lady. This is family time. Uh, but no, she ends up doing it to text Captain Crandall to find out all about, you know, a, this new planet that they are going to, which I haven't watched too many previews. I don't know if we're going there next episode. I mean, knowing Star Trek Picard... And knowing the fact, especially, that we only have three episodes left, and apparently episodes 9 and 10 are sort of like the disco finale in that they were built as a two-part episode, I think there's a very likely chance we're going to Planet Maddox next time. Yeah, I mean, we have to take a little while to get the band back together. Like, We need to wrap up Elnor, we need to put Elnor back with the group, we need to put everybody back on the La Serena. I think that could take part of the episode, but yeah, I would guess we're going to the two moon planet sooner rather than later not to mention the fact that the episodes have gotten you know the first six episodes or the first five episodes were all 45 minutes if that then we had episode six was about 50 this one was about 55 to 58 minutes so i can imagine the episodes just keep getting longer just to cram more information in there and i think that this is probably the last quote-unquote slow episode of Star Trek Picard that we'll see. I do think, honestly, with so much stuff going on, and now with a destination in mind, that it's going to be all-out havoc from here on out. Yeah, it, and it seems like they realize now, like, they've got so much story to tell, they're not going to waste a second. Yeah, and I think especially now that, like, they sort of have not necessarily resolve the Picard Soji stuff, but at least build a, a bridge to get them together. They said, okay, we use the Nepenthe beat to beat that in. Now let's have them face off against the Jat Vash and whatever's coming their way as we move on to our next thing. You know, this was a necessary step in the journey, and I'm so glad we took it because it was such a beautiful episode. But there are so many big fish to fry, and we better put our pull in the water. Yeah, um, and I'm super-duper hungry, Mike, because I really didn't eat enough dinner. 
<laughs> Listen, now you realize that portion sizes play a large role in podcast performance overall. You know Picard's tummy is going to be rumbling. Not sure about Soji. Data never seemed like he really needed to eat. so He enjoyed she- eating. He just didn't have to do it. Maybe that's why uh, they were fine giving the small slices to Soji and skimping with Picard is because they knew that like she wouldn't necessarily care. It's not contributing to her nutritionally anyway. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like they, they said, yes, get two. But it's like, why are you giving her extra? She's not going to be hungry. Yeah, that's true. Maybe they were expecting another data head tilt at an extraordinary number of pizza slices. Yeah. Also, it's weird that she does that data head tilt all the time. And nobody up until like three days ago guessed she was an android. True, though I guess, you know, I, I don't know how many people were in such close quarters with Data that it would pick up on his little ticks. Maybe they just thought that, like, she had a crick in her neck that she wasn't able to get out. Yo, Mike, if I met someone tomorrow who did that head tilt, I would 100% think they were an android, and we don't even have androids that I know is, of. Is, is that life advice we should put out there to folks? Like, if they do that Data held tilt, like, call the Jot Vosh because you got an android on your hands? Yeah, uh, like, go report your weird coworker with the head tilt to HR. See how that goes. <laughs> exactly. Could you imagine that meeting of, like, uh, Jessica accused you of being a synthetic life form due to the way you tilted your head during our quarterly meeting this afternoon? And then they tilt their head again. You know, like, yeah, yeah exactly oh. like that. But then they both tilt your head towards you. That's when the fun really starts. Oh, my God. Everybody around me is an android. I'm the only real human. Listen, it could have been prevented. We could have followed the shot Vosh, but we did it. Yeah, I guess I guess we brought that on ourselves, didn't we, Mike? So <laughs> is there anything else we need to talk about in this episode, or have we regurgitated every thought in our heads? I really don't think so, but I had so much fun with this episode, and I had so much fun with this podcast. Again, like as as a, a huge Star Trek fan, like this is the type of stuff that I've been absolutely loving. It's this foot in the past acknowledging these relationships with these characters but a foot in the present of acknowledging the new situations the new relationships they have and how how that informs one another and how they can look forward to the future i just thought it was well done on so many levels and it really you know just had my heart bursting with pride with sadness with excitement on so many levels so i mean i really do feel like picard has been knocking it out of the park really each and every week since they've been in space particularly and I really hope and expect that streak to continue for the next three weeks. Yeah, I really – I loved this episode as well. And I, I can't believe that it manages to be all things to all people. And yeah, we've yeah. mentioned it's it's got its flaws. But for the most part, it's just like anyone at any level of Trek expertise can come in and feel like they're getting something amazing out of it. And so I'm really excited to see where it starts to all wrap up next week. Oh my god, I still can't believe three weeks left, and then we still don't know when Star Trek Discovery is coming back and where Lower Decks fits in. They're probably going to spring it on us, they're going to do it Amazing Race style. Oh yeah, JK, it's coming out next week! Yeah, or it could be a thing where, like, at some point, maybe uh, as Picard's going to Planet Maddox, we see Discovery come back from 900 years in the future and is like, oh hey, hey, and then they'll they'll do that cross-promotion of Star Trek Discovery coming in April. They just sort of wave out the window. Yeah, exactly. Even though Technically, Discovery wouldn't know who Picard was, and I guess vice versa, right, if they were wiped from Starfleet records? Right, right. But it's like if you're driving on a rural road and you pass another car, you wave at them even if you don't know who they are. This has been the most, like, Montanan podcast ever between an outright reference to the state and two rural road references. (laughs) 
look like you you set a whole episode in the backwoods and this is what you get. That's true. I think it, the comparisons speak for themselves. Yeah, Nepenthe is like the Montana of planets. We can quote you on that. Yeah, 100%. Put it on memory alpha. Yes. So, Mike, what else you got going on this week? So, Josh Wiggler and I going down the hatch. Uh, we say goodbye to another character on our Lost podcast. Beloved, I'll put in quotations, but it was a super interesting breakdown into that character's final episodes. Of course, from a writing perspective, I'm writing about Star Trek Picard for CBR.com. You can check that out at CBR.com slash tag slash Picard. Got a couple things up in there about, you know, the Troy and Riker epilogue that we got, Hugh's death, which was interesting to dive into from a canonical perspective. Writing about Survivor, both of the U.S. and Australian variety. I had a three-hour Australian Survivor podcast as well with Shannon Gus that was a lot, very cathartic and a lot of fun. And of course, the RHAP B&B as well going on every week with some fun and some games and hopefully not too much puke. Jess, what about you? Um, I'm keeping the puke to a minimum as well. Uh, mostly I am spending my days podcasting with you over here and with Josh Wiggler talking about The Walking Dead every week and then writing the odd feature article for primetimer.com and making a few guest appearances on associated other podcasts. Um, you will find me, I don't know exactly when this is going to drop, but I had a great chat with um, our friend Dan Heaton this week, who uh, does a completely un-TV related podcast called The Tomorrow Society, where he talks about all things Disney parks and we kind of went on a very long tangent about Disney versus Universal uh, because since my main podcasting gig is to talk about Amazing Race on a Survivor podcast network, I figured I'd just go on a Disney podcast and talk about Universal. So that's <laughs> going to come out sometime in the next few weeks, and it was really a lot of fun. So I recommend everybody check that all out. So if you're just going to check this out and you want to know um, – how you can get in touch with us to tell us everything we got wrong. Um, I'm already anticipating nine mean tweets about calling snake leaf snake weed. So you can cross, cross that one off your list already. But we want to hear from you, um, all of your thoughts and theories about this episode, about the series in general, how it's going to wrap up. And you can do that a couple of different ways. You can rate and review us in the iTunes store. You can leave a comment on the page at posterrecaps.com. But probably the best way is to get at us on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at HaymakerHattie. And you can find me at a Mike Bloom type. And uh, the thing that we're super receptive for is uh, canonical connections, especially an episode like this, which obviously had a lot of callbacks. But we've sort of experienced this throughout Picard that really the callbacks can be from literally anywhere at any point in time. Just during the conversation between Troy and Soji, apparently the music was a remix of the original Romulus theme from uh, the TOS episode. I think it's Balance of Terror. So really call outs can come from anywhere in trek canon and considering how voluminous it was let us know you know if you make any sort of easter egg uh finds especially as easter nears yeah i mean i mean it's lent right now so the easter eggs are going to be coming fast and furious um and especially i i think i think mike and i individually have our own pockets of expertise where the star trek universe is concerned but we don't have the huge both deep and broad knowledge so we appreciate your help anywhere you can point that out and it's been really fun so far hearing from you and hearing all your theories and finding all those little tiny things so we hope you will continue to do that and so with that we're gonna wrap things up we got a 
Apparently, I'm going to call the EHH in to do a little cleanup after we wrap this episode. Um, you know, things are getting a little grim over here. So we want to thank you all for listening and uh, live long and prosper. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>